This morning we'll be looking together at Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Two sections in your scriptures probably headlined by two different things. One called Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the other a man with a withered hand. Both regarding teachings on the Sabbath. As you turn there, I was reminded this week of my brother who passed away here recently. My brother loved puzzles. He loved Legos and connects, even as an adult. He loved other types of building or creating things with those types of sets, or we might say, toys. In fact, when my family was visiting when our kids were young, he would build humongous projects from these sets, knowing that my children would visit so they could be amazed at what he had built and, of course, to play with the toys. One of the joys of this type of building or creating, of course, is to build it any way that we want. I have to say, I think this is sometimes how we try to build and shape Jesus. To try to make him how we want and shape him the way we think is best, however we want him to be. But here in the book of Mark, we find out that those who try to create a savior in their own mold or their own shape will realize that Jesus will not be molded into someone else's idea because Jesus is not only Savior, he is the Lord. Follow along as I read these two passages. Beginning 2.23, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. As we consider this teaching of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, you gave us this word for your glory and for our good. It will not go forth and come back void. It is true it is always true in all places, at all times, regardless of what we think or believe. But Lord, we pray that you would help us with our thinking and believing today. Give us ears to hear your word and hearts to understand it. That your spirit might help us apply this word to the teaching, the understanding of our hearts, and to our very lives. I pray, Lord, that anything spoken here, thought here, or done here inconsistent with your word shall pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name.
As a young pastor, I remember I was told by many that you should be careful not to rock the boat when you first go into a church. And I thought of ways that you can rock the boat. Sometimes you can rock the boat by breaking traditions or by doing things that people don't necessarily like or agree with. I remember when I came here for the first time, I saw all kinds of signs on the doors to the sanctuary that said, do not bring food and drink into the sanctuary. And guess what? I know people that bring drink into the sanctuary in little thermoses or water bottles or other things. And sometimes they've even been spilled on the carpets. Is it terrible and sinful to bring these drinks into the sanctuary? And of course, we all have opinions about what the sanctuary should look like, don't we? Should it be blank? Should it have stuff? Should it have a cross or not have a cross? Should it have a Bible on the table? Should we be very plain or should we be very picturesque? Or what are these things that we should do? What is proper and what is good? We all have ideas. And sometimes we can show and prove from the scriptures that our ideas are true. What about kids running in the building? Is it okay for a child to run down the hallway as long as they don't run into anything or they don't run into anybody? Or is there a never-ending law in the scriptures to tell us if a kid walks or runs down the hallway, rather, he might be struck down and die because of his insincerity? But what about before the service? Some of us come from a tradition where we come in reverently, quietly. That's not necessarily the tradition recently of this church. We come in loudly, and it takes the worship team some music to quiet us down. What is it that's the proper way to come in to worship? You see, there are many ways we can create what we might call our own Mishnah, that is, the Jewish tradition of all the laws surrounding the law so that they would not break the law itself. In other words, not only did they have the Sabbath principle, they also had 39 set rules around the Sabbath, and then they began to create additional side rules so that the Sabbath would not be broken. They had all kinds of rules and traditions. In fact, even today, if you are an Orthodox Jew following the customs of the law, if you enter an elevator, you are not to press the button on the Sabbath. In fact, certain appliances, you cannot flip the switch, but you may ask somebody else to do those things for you. In fact, we all have our own rules, don't we? In fact, you probably, if you have children, you had all kinds of rules for your household. Some of them were biblical rules, and some of them were your rules, so that you could run the household well. And yet, what do we do with rules? We all break them. But we want to control what we might call sin. We want control over sin. In fact, we want to be able to tell other people when they're doing the wrong thing. And we often lack mercy. But thank God, Jesus is Lord over even the law. Is the law a good thing? Absolutely. It's a wonderful thing because God made us the law to delight in him and live in such a way that is a benefit to us and glory to God. And yet we can make the law a burden. Here in this passage, these sections of scripture that we read, we find that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord in his perfection of his life. He is Lord over God's law but he's also Lord over God's mercy. But first of all, Jesus' perfection. Isn't it interesting what happens in verse 23? 
They're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. And as they make their way, his disciples begin to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees say to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Notice who the accusation is posed against. It's not against Jesus. It's against his disciples. We get the indication Jesus wasn't there among them plucking the grain. I don't know why he wasn't. Perhaps he wasn't hungry. Perhaps he didn't want to break the tradition at that particular point to prove a point. I don't know what it is. But it's interesting, through this section of scripture we find out, they can't accuse Jesus of anything legitimately. But they can look at his disciples and find things that are wrong. And then what is the argument over? The argument is not over the validity of the law. Jesus recognizes the validity of God's law. It's not over the details of God's law. It's over the interpretation of that law. Now, first of all, you might wonder, because in our tradition, you go in your neighbor's garden and you start picking things or something, then, you know, that's not a good thing to do. You know, I remember way back in the day, my dad was a pastor, and there was a retired pastor in the community who was a single guy his whole life, had been there years and years, and he was known for just walking into people's gardens, including ours, and just picking whatever he wanted, eating it on the spot. Well, in those days, we know from the law, particularly Deuteronomy 23:25, it was legitimate to go in and pluck something from your neighbor's field to eat at that moment. It wasn't okay to go and reap or harvest things in your neighbor's field without permission, but it was picking in the neighbor's field was something that was legitimate on most days of the week. But was it okay to do it on the Sabbath? Well, we turn to Exodus 34, 21, we recognize that plowing or reaping on the Sabbath is not permissible. But what about picking and eating? doesn't say anything about that. Were these disciples reaping on the Sabbath? No. In fact, Jesus is crying out to the Pharisees here who are trying to show anything they can to show why Jesus is such a bad guy, even through his disciples' behavior, that he comes and he shows to them by a biblical example that it was legitimate. But the point for this point in my message this morning is notice the accusations are not against Jesus. They're not against the actual literal breaking of the law. In fact, there's an absence of Jesus even violating here Jewish tradition. Jesus was without sin. One reason he could be an expert in the law is he never broke it. I'm told, or I read this morning, actually, I was trying to look it up because I was curious. I don't know much about the NBA. I don't follow it, National Basketball Association, but I was interested in who the tallest guy in the NBA was. Currently, his name is Boban Marjovic. He played 31 games last year for the Houston Rockets, but he averaged only three points per game. Despite being the tallest NBA player at seven feet, four inches tall. You imagine, seven feet, four inches tall, you can only make three points a game. Now you can accuse him of many things, but being short is not one of them. 
Now, these disciples accused Jesus of many things, didn't they? They accused him of all kinds of different things, but actually being a lawbreaker was not one of them. At least when it came to the, the true breaking of the law of God. You see, Jesus is our model for godly living. Now, I'm not suggesting you go run around and start wearing on your wrist way back, you know, 30 years ago, what would Jesus do, bracelets, WWJD, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, there is a sense in which we understand if we want to know the model for moral, righteous living, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we should be seen as those who submit to the rule of God's law. Part of that is because Jesus is Lord over God's law. Here he gives some of the meaning of the law. Now, we get the details. Was it okay for them to go in their neighbor's fields and pluck it and eat it? Yes, that was permissible. Was it okay for them to do that on the Sabbath? Well, that's the question, isn't it? The Pharisees say, no, your disciples are doing the wrong thing. But Jesus says to them and gives them this bizarre example from the Old Testament that Stephen read earlier. It's the account of David. David, if you know the context here, he actually is not on the king's business. He's running away from the king. He's found out from his wife that indeed Saul is seeking to take his life. King Saul, David is not king yet. And so David flees from the house and evidently gathers some men with him. And he comes uh, because he's, he's unable to gather up weapons and provisions and so forth to run away from Saul. He goes to this place called Nob, where the priests are and where at that particular time the tabernacle is dwelling. And he asks for food. Now, of course, when we get to this passage here in Mark, we understand there are a couple of problems here with our text. One of them is this. Uh, did the event in way back in 1 Samuel really happen on the Sabbath? Well, we don't really know. There's some indication it might have been the case because that was the day the hot bread was replaced in the, in the tabernacle and so forth. But, but did it, you know, what is, is the Sabbath principle really in that story? Is that the point? The other problem is this. It says here, he says, when Abiathar was priest, well, you notice who was dealing with David. It was Ahimelech, Abiathar's father. However, we understand it says in the days of Abiathar, the priest Abiathar became the more well-known figure because he was someone who followed David. And then, of course, there was an all-encompassing uh, history of the priesthood with Abiathar, both good and bad and all those things. So these are the problems that some people that say are with the text. I don't think it's there because the point is not so much that David was there on the Sabbath or not. It wasn't so much who the priest was. That's not even so significant. David was there. And the point was this. Who was David? David, by this point, is the anointed one. He's not become king yet. But he's the one God has chosen, a man after God's own heart, someone who has been chosen to be the future king of Israel. And when he was in need... He was permitted, even by this priest, because of who he was, to eat this bread. In fact, Matthew adds this text. You find it on the other side of your outline there. He adds this here. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? 
I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, who was greater or what was greater than the temple that was there in the time that this is happening in Scripture? Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple. In fact, when he says the temple will be destroyed... And yet it will be rebuilt in one of those places. He's referring not to the building that they see before them. He's referring to his own body. The point of this and the meaning of the law here is that it is who was here in need at this time. In order to break the Sabbath and in order to do those things which would normally be considered at least questionable in the sight of others, it was permissible because of the need and the identity of the person who was involved. You see, this is the nature of the Sabbath. Jesus never says, the Sabbath is not in vogue anymore. It's okay not to have the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath principle, the most neglected of all of the Ten Commandments, I agree with Robert Godfrey who says the 20th century will be known as the century that America gave up the Sabbath, the American church. I agree with that. By and large, most of you here today probably do not practice the Sabbath as perhaps I think you might or other Sabbatarians think you might. I don't necessarily impose all my restrictions and laws upon you, but I should say your Sunday, the first day of the week, which is the Sabbath from the time that Jesus rose from the dead until the time when Jesus comes back, your Sabbath on a weekly basis should look different than the other days of the week if possible. But it's not so that we can be strict and rule keepers. It's because the nature of the Sabbath is for the delight of man. You see, this meaning of the law shows that Jesus is master of the law. Here are the Pharisees and the scribes. They have this book of laws all around the Sabbath. They want to keep the Sabbath. They think it's important to keep the Sabbath. It's almost as if you get one of these things where somebody has like a little pocket book or something, one of those little books, and you find out that when they open it up, it, it unfolds into this great, big, huge monster thing. And this is what their Sabbath was like. It became a fear to be able to keep all the things. They could only walk so long. They could only carry so much. They could only do certain things. And it became such a burden that the ordinary person just threw their hands up and gave up. But Jesus, in being the master of the law, says this wonderful verse in verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't set the rules down for the Sabbath and say, okay, man, I place you here so that you can be observant to the Sabbath no matter what it takes so that you can be declared righteous before everybody else. No. This was the model that God gave based on his own work. God himself rested on the seventh day. And he instituted that Sabbath so that in the cycle and ordinary lives of human beings, because of the work he wants them to do, work is a good thing, but yet because of the world and sin and its consequences, sin or work has become a difficult thing. So now it's a time to rest from your labors, but to rest, not just to rest and sleep in your bed, but to rest in him, to worship together, 
to consider and meditate upon his word and promises and all of those different things. And so here he gives an example. Mark does, but also Jesus by his actions. This is the thing that says, the man with the withered hand. Again, he entered the synagogue, assumedly, on a Sabbath. In fact, one of the other gospel writers tells us it was another Sabbath. Mark seems to indicate it was the same Sabbath. It doesn't matter which one it was. A man was there with a withered hand. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew what this man had his problem. And evidently, he was put in such a position, this, withered, this man with the withered hand was put in such a position, either by the scribes and Pharisees, or maybe the scribes and Pharisees got just the right seat to be able to see what Jesus is going to do about it. You know, it seems so bizarre, doesn't it? Here's a guy with a physical problem, and the scribes and Pharisees are watching to see what's going to happen with this guy with this physical problem when they know Jesus can heal him. Uh, it, it's just a bizarre thing. They know Jesus has the power to do this. They've witnessed it. They've testified to it. They, the crowds know it. Everybody there has heard about Jesus doing these amazing and powerful miracles, and yet they're sitting there looking to see if Jesus is going to heal that guy on a Saturday. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees didn't accept that. The scribes didn't accept that. They didn't accept that Jesus was Lord. They did accept that he had the power to heal. They did recognize by this point that in their mind he was blaspheming by forgiving people's sins. And yet they think that this guy, if he heals somebody on that day, that's set aside with those special things to do on that day, that if he heals on that day, then he's a lawbreaker. But here's the case study, isn't it? The interpretation of the rabbis is this. If life is not threatened, there should be no healing. Think of that. You break your ankle. And somebody has the power to heal you on the spot. Because it's not life-threatening, you need to wait until the next day. Right? This is the interpretation of the rabbis. Here's the interpretation of Jesus. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Here's his interpretation. First of all, it's an appeal to simple logic, isn't it? Is it okay to do good or to do bad? I guess in the rabbi's case, in this case, it's only good to do nothing. Isn't that just like us? We don't use simple logic like that to make those arguments sometimes. We, we want to find all the deep answers of Scripture to find out what the truth is on that particular subject. But instead, Jesus appeals to simple logic. Is it okay to do good or to do evil? And there's a challenge here of something. There's a challenge of authority. Now, I don't recommend men that you teach your kids to challenge every authority that they have. Of course not. You know, Jesus doesn't challenge every authority that he has. He never challenges the authority of the scriptures. He never challenges the authority of his father. He never challenges legitimate authority. 
But the problem is this. The scribes and the Pharisees at this point had made themselves the authority of the law. And so when they wrote and added to the law all those additional requirements and added to the law all the motivations you must have in keeping the law, when they added all those things, they made themselves the authority. I'm a parent. We have one child home now. But I remember still when they were all young. When you told them to pick up the toys... You know, they had different interpretations of the law than I did. And you know, when you think that that happens when, the little, when they're little and you think, well, as they get older, they'll, they'll, they'll get it. But you know, when they become teenagers, you find out that when you tell them to go to bed, they have a different interpretation of what it means when it's time to go to bed. You know, they, they think that that means it's time to brush their teeth and it's time to, to hug the dog and it's time to, to do this and to do that. And then, of course, at the end of all those other things, they're going to go to bed. You know, whether it's the literal or figurative bedtime, to the literal or figurative, it's time to get ready to go. If you have young kids, you know what that means. Somehow, it looks different to them than it does to us. And this is the problem. When we look at the law of God, we look at it, and sometimes we look at it with our interpretation to make ourselves the authority over others in the way that they are to keep this law. But Jesus is Lord of the law. His interpretation of the Sabbath that the Sabbath is to be observed. It was his custom to go and worship every single Sabbath, in case you're wondering. If you want to be like Jesus, you'll go to church every Sunday, if possible. His idea here was that the Sabbath was legitimate, but the interpretation of these Pharisees and scribes was illegitimate. Because their interpretation was all about legalism. And yet Jesus' interpretation, still taking the legitimate authority of the law, still understanding it is valid and the principles of that law are still true, yet there is in that law delight and mercy. And so Jesus' authority as Lord over the law reigns. Whether it's about the Sabbath, whether it's about adultery, whether it's about murder, or anything else. Jesus is Lord of the law. But thank be to God, he's also Lord over mercy. You see, the Sabbath had two exceptions. One was need. We saw that in plucking in the field because of their hunger. Here is mercy. Did that man with the withered hand have to be healed at that moment on that Sabbath? Of course not. He lived with that for how long? It's interesting, tradition tells us that perhaps this man was a mason and had injured himself in his mason work and all this stuff. I don't know, it's all extra biblical stuff. But of course, it was life impacting and affecting regardless of what it was. Everybody saw this disability that this man had and it impacted his ability to work and provide for his family and it would have impacted his social interactions with everybody and yet it was not life-threatening. Did Jesus have to heal him right there? No. But Jesus chose to do that to show that the other exception was mercy. 
Look at the emotions of the masters. He looked around at them, this is verse 5, with two things. Anger. Why is he angry? Now, we don't do good with anger. We usually sin with it. But Jesus, being sinless, without any type of impact on his emotion of anger, was angry at this. That they would use God's law to prevent someone from having delight at being healed. That they would use God's law to beat people with it rather than to show mercy. Now, is God's law important? Yes. Is it legitimate? Yes. Is it valid? Even the principles valid today? Absolutely. But if you keep this law merely for the sake of keeping the law and forget the compassion and mercy of God behind it, you've missed the whole point. That's the first thing. The other thing is grief. It says he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. There are two ways you see the hardness of heart. Alan Cole describes it this way, a stubborn resistance to the purpose of God. In one way, the hardness of heart is pride. That these folks were finding a way to show that they were more righteous than Jesus. Another is their self-glory. They were jealous of the idea that Jesus was having these followers. Later on in the Gospels, we're going to hear that they're saying, or even in the book of Acts, they're going to say that the whole world has gone after them as if that's a terrible thing. To go after Jesus is a horrible thing in their eyes. Why? Because they wanted self-glory. They wanted the following. You know, we struggle with that, don't we? We want the biggest church in the Grand Strand. We want the biggest denomination. We want the most power, the most influence. We want to be called the best at whatever. We want that following. No. It's not about that. But this pride and this self-glory leads to unbelief and to blatant sin. And so then what happens? Here's the action of the master. He merely says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. What kind of restoration is this? This is compassionate restoration. He saw the need. He had the ability to do something about the need in that moment, despite all the objections of those who thought they were the self-appointed authorities of God's law. Despite these things, Jesus had compassion on this man in the presence of everybody and restored his hand. And what happens if we don't recognize Jesus' legitimate authority over mercy and law. Well, that's verse 6, isn't it? The Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, of course, if you know this, you know the verse here is very bizarre. Who are the Herodians? They're very seldom mentioned in the scriptures. Evidently, there were those amongst the Jews that would have been rather a strange idea, but because their bigger enemy was Rome, some of them would have gravitated towards Herod, who was working with Rome. But, but Herod Antipas at this time, half Edomite, uh, his line uh, with the Herodians, they're all half Edomite. They're considered outside the, the ability to be Jewish in that sense. So the Pharisees would have had nothing to do with these Herodians. It was a political ploy to try and get Rome off their backs. But these strange bedfellows, Pharisees, who aren't political but are moral and seeking more 
more than anything to be keepers of the law. And the Herodians, who are certainly not Pharisees, they're not moral people, they're political animals, they go to each other to do what? To try to destroy Jesus. Both of them, Jesus is a threat to. He's a threat to those who try to use politics in order to get their way. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's a threat to the Pharisees who say, if you keep the law and are righteous in the ways that we tell you are the best ways to do so, then you will be righteous before God. And Jesus says, there's no one righteous, not one, through the hand of Paul, his servant. So what is this rebellion against the master? In fact, Luke tells us they were filled with fury. They were so angry that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? When it comes down to it, I think we're like that too. We might not have been there with Jesus on that day, waiting to see if he's going to heal this guy. But we're just waiting to see if that person who claims that they're a Christian, that politician who claims Christianity, that athlete who claims Christianity, that boss who claims Christianity, we're just waiting to see if they're really going to follow the ways that they say they're going to follow because they're Christians. And then we look at them and we say, oh, look at what they've done. Look at this politician who's committed adultery and left his wife. Look at this athlete who's gone and done these terrible things. Look at this entertainer who has fallen to the temptations of the world. Look at them and look at how righteous I am. On one hand, our standards, we say, you know, it's okay if we tell little white lies or we fudge with our taxes here or there. Or if, you know, we just tell a little bit of gossip and not, not too much. It's okay if we just, if we just uh, don't do things biblically in this way. It's, it's all right. And we develop our own standards. On the other hand, what we do is we raise the standards for everybody else. And we say, okay, now here are my standards. You need to follow all my standards or you're not acceptable before God because my standards, after all, I am so biblical. I'll never forget the time when an elder and I went out to a family's house and they were having difficulty with the relationship with somebody else in the church. And we went out there and we described to them how in Matthew 18, our idea of how to develop a relationship with somebody else that has gone sour is first we go to that person and then if the person doesn't listen to you and they've sinned against you, then you go and you take a witness to them and you try to work it out. And if they still don't listen to you, then you come to the church. And we went through the whole process. And we desired for that person just to meet with the other person in the church that we're struggling with. And we got to the end of the conversation and the fellow said to us, you know, that's the problem with your church. We're not going to go there anymore because we're more biblical than you. Who was the law made for? Was the law made for man? Or was man made for the law? Sometimes we get it all confused. I think in the church, yes, we are struggling in the church, the American church and the Western church, whatever you want to call it, we're struggling with the idea that law is important. We're struggling with the idea that there are any standards. And yet those of us who believe the law is important and that there are standards 
and that by the scriptures there are moral things that God wants us to do as we glorify him. And these principles are found in scripture, not in some tradition, not in some other person's idea, but in God's word. Yet we struggle too with the other side, don't we? We struggle with the idea that the law is the most important thing to follow in all of its details. And if we just follow the law, then we'll be better than those people who don't follow the law out there. men have had the opportunity to study Psalm 119 over the last year or so. And over and over again, the author writes, I love your law. People in America don't love law right now. But on the other hand, people in America love the law. And they want to put everybody else under it. Under their ideas, under it, un under all the things that we have. You know, if we were to follow every single law that's on the books in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and the state of South Carolina, and the United States of America, and under international law, every one of us probably broke one this morning, right? But that's true with the Bible, too. If you're guilty of breaking one of them, you're guilty of all of them. And yet, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He has the power to heal and to forgive. Are you submitting to Jesus as the Lord of the law and mercy? Or do you have your own standards? That's the question this morning. Let's pray. Father, help us to submit to you, to both your mercy and your truth. Lord, to recognize the validity of the law that you have given us, but to also recognize it points us as a school teacher to the fact that we are lawbreakers and we rely completely and totally not upon our righteousness, but upon your mercy. We throw ourselves, Lord, upon your mercy, that by your grace you might save us from our sin. And help us, by the power of your Spirit, to begin following your law, not out of a burden, but out of delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.